Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Welcome to the season finale of SaaS Origin Stories. It's hard to believe, but we have reached the end of an incredible journey with our first season. Today, we are bringing you the ultimate episode to wrap it all up. In this grand finale, we wanted to highlight some of the most captivating moments from our top 10 episodes. We've handpicked guests who will share their remarkable SaaS origin stories, and we are thrilled to present their insights to you. To keep you on the edge of your seat, we haven't arranged the clips in any particular order. So sit back, relax, and enjoy these enlightening conversations that will leave you inspired. Join us as we bid farewell to season one and celebrate the incredible journeys that brought us here. This is a finale you won't want to miss. Let's dive into the captivating world of SaaS origin stories one last time. So how did you get into books and to learning that you could read? Because basically you went and you found the Java book and then you got into coding. And myself personally, I believe I wouldn't be who I am today if it weren't for the books I read. Like the books I read, it's it's better than any schooling that I did or anything else because you can learn from people like you that went to hard times, but I also build amazing companies in books. But like, how did you get like in, into making book part of who you are, making yeah. reading part of who you are? It's kind of nuts, but like, I think... Like I wasn't a reader, right? Like with my ADHD, I would like read a sentence on a page and then just go off into the distance and then like come down and I'm like, whoa, I just read three pages, but I don't even remember what I read. You know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff. Like, cause I would read when I was sentenced away or like, you know, the Bible and other things. But when I started reading computer books, I think it's because I had like a desire to build something. So like, that's when I started to understand this concept I call just in time. So I, I don't read for things unless it's a now thing. So if I'm going to build an app and I need a database, then I read the book on how to build the database. So it's a very like connected thing. Whereas reading books to be entertained, I could never do. And what happened is, is like reading these computer books for literally years. I mean, I started at 16, 17, and it wasn't until I was 23 when I finally... And I remember the the moment in my life. I was in Ottawa, Canada. I was working for the aviation department uh, in Canada. And I was on break at lunch. And I was walking down to the mall where all the, the food court was. And there was a, a bookstore there in Canada. We call it Chapters, right? Like an Indigo or a Borders. And I walked in just because like, you know, I like the smell of books. Like it's kind of like a library. And it, it reminded me of like having all these books open on my desk with like code. And I went to the business section, you know, cause I had tried business. And I just failed so many times. And like, this is how crazy it was is that I didn't even buy a book. I bought CDs. So like the, the, it's this like orange CD called love is a killer app. And it's cause the guy was the, uh, the ex chief solution officer of Yahoo. So I was like, okay, He's in tech. He used to be the Yahoo guy. So like, he probably has some things that I should learn. And I bought the CDs because I knew I would listen to it, maybe. Um, and this was my strategy. I literally was like, I went back to the office and I put it in the CD tray at the, the company I was working for on their time. And I didn't do any work. I just sat there and listened to the stories. And that like pulled me in. And then what was funny is I wanted to read more. But again, my my attention deficit would be like really tough. So I would literally drive around listening to CDs because it would force me to listen. So I would like buy books on like marketing or, buy, you know, Good to Great or Seven Habits or Thinking Grow Rich or all these like classic books. And I would just drive around for two or three hours on a Saturday morning, you know, go to the gym and then go for a drive, get some coffee and just like absorb it. And, and eventually that transitioned to um, even the E-Myth, like that book transformed my life. I listened to it on a six hour road trip um, between Akron, Ohio and Baltimore, Maryland. So it's like, 
I didn't read physical books for a long time. Now, now it's kind of funny because like I don't take any medication for my ADHD. I'm, I'm I self medicate through nutrition and you know my structure, my time, my energy management, and you know. I read, I've read over 1500 books at this point in my life. You know, tw- it was literally 20 years ago next year um, that I read my first book. And then obviously, you know, we're talking because I've got a new book coming out. I mean, it's crazy. Like, it's just nuts to think the impact of those books that I've had in my life and how I went from not being able to read to now I read 10 pages every day religiously, like minimum. How did you come up with the idea for Proof Analytics and how was living from where you were to start this company? I started as a marketing leader, right? I started saying to myself about 15, 20 years ago, you know, I am sick and tired of not being able to answer what's my value to the business, right? What am I, what, what business areas of business performance is marketing? multiplying and making even more successful. And so I just, I, I just had it, right? I was tired of all the negative meetings. I was tired of all the budget cuts. I was tired of all that stuff. And so I was kind of at this existential point where I was either going to solve the problem or I was going to stop being a marketing leader. It was one of those two things. And I decided not to curse the darkness anymore. And so I plunged into what turned out to be, you know, a 15 to 20 year journey of learning the math and learning conceptually and and architecturally how data science operates and how we could leverage it to solve this problem for marketing and salespeople. And I got to a fairly, my teams and I got to a fairly high degree of maturity on that whole thing, enough to say two things. One, we could do it. Everyone else agreed that we could do it and it was worth it. But damn, it was hard and it was expensive. At Honeywell, I was spending six, seven, eight million dollars a year just on analytics. Let's dive deeper on the funding part. How did you fund that? Initially, it was me and just a few other people. And then we just kept... So we, we made a fundamental decision early on that we did not want venture money in the company, that it was an, we believed it was inherently distortive in terms of what was most important to be able to do in, say, from that point forward, five years, right? And so we went with family offices that were software specialists. We had like five or six early on. And we raised money from them based on performance gates. So we did it in tranches and that helped mitigate their risk. It also allowed us, as we accomplished goals in the company, right? Revenue or product wise or whatever, the value of the company went up. And so stock became more expensive over time. And so, you know, each tranche would buy a little less stock. All right. So, It reduced their risk. It also reduced our dilution big time. And it gave us very stable funding partners who were not looking for an instant hockey stick and all that kind of stuff. They were looking for something that was more sustainable and that would ultimately, you know, get there. But they were, I mean, so it's not about a lack of accountability, I assure you, but it, they just had a different timetable and a different set of standards around what they wanted out of it. So that's how we funded it. That's how we did it. That's a very uncommon strategy. I'm familiar with family offices and private equity funding like later stage company. And like you say, most times this kind of entities, they're looking for companies that are making money. They're looking for growth, but not as much growth. And they're not the kind of partner that want you to make it or die. They are looking for a stable company. But I haven't never heard before of someone that fund a early stage startup with family offices. So how long did it take you to build the first version of your product? (laughs) So in our particular case, a normal MVP approach just doesn't work. Because if, if you're building an analytics platform from the point of view of math and all the classic use cases, right, it's either complete or it's incomplete. 
And if it's incomplete, no one wants to talk to you. So we were very fortunate. One of the first things you have to do as a founder that's very confusing is raise money. And like in a very concrete way, being on the other end really helps you do that. Like if you see it done a hundred times, when you go out to do it yourself, it's very much demystified. And it's like asking for a raise or something like, you know, you have to do it, but it's about money, which is not a topic that we talk about in society. And it's, it's awkward and you don't know how people do it. Are they supposed to be aggressive? Are they supposed to be like humble? Are they supposed to be like, do they ask directly? Do they go around it? And just, just sort of seeing it was, was truly, truly helpful. And what are you supposed to do? You post the questions, but like for the other founders that didn't have the experience that you had of being the VC side, what advice you give them like when preparing to raise money? So here's some of the advice I give all my friends who are going out to raise to um, prepare them for how to do a great pitch. Um, so just uh, just to level set. So as a VC, I worked on early stage deals. These are seed and series A. Um, and we at Gem, we've raised the seed round. So this is specifically about seed deals. And the other thing to say is that the market right now in venture is um, is extremely tough. And so uh, if you remember last year, there was that boat stuck in the canal and there was like the little digger that was trying to get it out. This advice is like the little digger. It's just polish. And, and really, the market is just truly tough today. So uh, the first thing that I think is a really good framework to have when you're going out to raise is that you, the founder, the one who is pitching, you are in the business of delivering a great meeting. And understanding that helps you make all the other tiny decisions that go into how you are going to pitch, where you're going to pitch. If you think it's a better meeting to be in person, you shouldn't be pitching on Zoom. If you think it's a better meeting not to show your pitch deck because you actually want your face to be front and center, you should not show a pitch deck. Um, you should think about how do you want to start the meeting that is memorable, that's awesome. Like, do you want to start and ask them like, where are they based? What's the weather like? Or do you want to start by telling them about an awesome customer demo you just got out of that morning? So that's how the preparation and, and how you can like really make an amazing meeting, an amazing experience for the VCs in the room. And, and I like that, especially coming from product myself too, like yourself, when I go to do something, I think, what's the job to be done? What's the problem I'm trying to solve? <laughs> and the job to be done in this case, you want as the founder to have, help the VCs have an Put together an amazing meeting. That's why you're telling us, right? Exactly that. And part of that is is really tough to do in practice, which is sometimes VCs will ask you things just to see if you have thought about them or to see how you think about them. But you as the founder, you want to tell them everything. So you can see, you can show them like how deeply you've thought about whatever it is that they are asking. But actually short and sweet and engaging is so much better than long answers. So one of the things I often advise other founders to do when they're pitching is when the VC asks a question to give a high level overview first and then offer to go more into detail. So basically letting the VC steer the conversation and giving them the meeting that they want. Amazing. That's great advice. So I want to talk with you more about the timeline because... Looks like you had the idea out of the way back at Cloudfire. You met your founder, but you went and you were VC for two years. So how long until from the day you say, I'm going to do this to the day you actually start uh, going to raise money and, and go full time on the startup? For us, it was right away. As, as soon as we realized that this was an issue that we not only faced ourselves at Cloudflare needed tooling for, but... The other, at that point, it was probably 10, 20 product managers we had talked to had. Um, we just went out and decided, I, I decided I'm full-time and my co-founder was now on a path to be full-time as well. The first thing we did was just keep interviewing. In total, we interviewed somewhere between 40 to 50 product managers to make sure that this was a problem that they all had. And at the same time, we were also raising money. Um, it was at the very, very beginning of the early COVID work from home. And we were not sure what was going to happen to the VC market. So we felt in a time crunch. Did you guys build a product at all before raising the money or you raise money first and then build the product later? We built a very early prototype and we would start every pitch meeting by getting the investor in the product jamming with us. And that made everything so much easier. We didn't have to sell like, here's what this possibly could look like. Here's why we think it will work. We just did it and people sort of got it. Our product is 100% built in Salesforce, which is actually really important because it's not just doing those individual pieces of the puzzle, if you will. 
It's the workflow, the automation, the data sync, the data consistency throughout those processes. So we felt it was really important to have all of those elements natively inside of Salesforce. So you can really just go from, you know, lead all the way through collecting cash in the same system, which just helps with visibility and audits and tracking all the information. We have, I don't know, 150, 200 metrics and analytics components built specifically for B2B SaaS. So everything's like, what your bookings error are, what your CAC, what your LTV to CAC. I mean, it's kind of uh, mind-blowing all the different analytics that come out of it. That's awesome. Later on the show, I want to touch base more on building on top of Salesforce and like choosing a platform. But before we get there, could you tell me a little bit how you come up with the idea? Yeah, I mean, so I didn't ever think I was actually going to be in software. I didn't go to school or anything like that for software. I started in banking, financial services when I was right out of school. And then I stumbled into staffing and recruiting and I was in that for a while which is where I got the idea to create my first software company, which is a company called Talent Rover. Started building that in 2009, commercialized it in 2011, sold it after scaling it to eight countries and customers in more than 40 countries. I sold it in March of 2018. Inc. 500 had us as the ninth fastest growing software company in America in 2017. So it was a fun ride with that company. But building that company you know, and scaling it I live the problem that we're solving with place. Just like the reason why I built Talent Rover is to live the challenges I had when I was in staffing and recruiting. But growing a global SaaS business and trying to manage all of this was nearly impossible. So we got really good at you know doing all of this in spreadsheets and we used a lot of different point solutions, but it was, it was always super frustrating. So after the sell, I decided I wanted to tackle this problem. And we originally set out to tackle the financial reporting and financial forecasting challenge. And we started selling the product in 2020, uh, which was quite the fun time to launch a new software company right before the pandemic. (laughs) Then in 2021, we rolled out our revenue and billing component. And then the beginning of 2022, we started to roll out our customer subscription management component to now complete all three. So it's been a fun ride, but one of the reasons why what's been so fun is we use our product at all of my companies and I just know intimately what it's like to try to manage this on both the accounting and finance side and on the operational side. So it's a fun endeavor. So basically you got a problem that you understood very well yeah. when you were building the first company. You're like, I'm going to go and I'm going to solve this problem because I saw how much the pain was and you understood probably where you would go find other companies that had similar issues with what you were having. I feel like that's the best way to build a SaaS product. Yeah. And hands off to the people that just create something totally new that they don't have the personal history with living the problem. I'm not that guy. (laughs) I know the problems I have and I know how I want to solve the problems. And then I'm not intimidated to take the risk to try to figure out how to solve it and have enjoyed doing it. You say, my companies, you don't run only one business. Tell me a little bit more about what is everything that you're running right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty interesting story. So I technically have three companies that I'm the CEO of, right? Which sounds a lot, a lot. It's not actually, I mean, it's a lot, but it's not as much as it sounds. So, you know, when we decided to launch Place at the end of 2018 is when we decided to do the business, you know, I was kind of a free agent. So I sold... Talent Rover in March of 18. I stayed with them for a while. And then, you know, August of 18, we decided to launch Place. So we're getting the foundation going. At the same time, really good reputation for building software companies in Salesforce, which we'll talk about. And people knew that I was available. So people asked me for advice and consulting. So I started consulting. It was a great way to bring in some additional cash as we were just setting out to figure out how we were going to build Place and what we were going to do from a financing standpoint for Place. So that consulting business took a life of its own and it became my second company, which is called Blueprint Advisory, which is a consulting business for companies who want to build products on Salesforce, implement Salesforce. But also we have an advisory services arm where we advise companies on how to think about Salesforce. We advise staffing and recruiting firms specifically on how to leverage Salesforce for their business. And then what Blueprint became up until recently was the implementation arm of Place, which was great because, you know, I had a product company with Place selling the core product and then Blueprint was a separate company doing all the services. So it it enabled one company to really focus on product and one company to really focus on services. 
what is GMS? What problem do you solve? And how did you come up with the idea to build this product? GMAS is a software that makes it really easy to send email campaigns. And the way it works is it's a plugin for your Gmail account. So when you log into Gmail, we add some extra stuff to your Gmail screen to allow you to use Gmail as your email campaign platform. And so our users use it for everything from sales-related cold email campaigns to e-tailers promoting sales for Black Friday to even a bunch of non-commercial uses like parents emailing teachers of a school. That's pretty cool. So, so walk me through like the process of coding, building the product. How was the process? And even come up with the idea. Yeah. So I came up with the idea while I was working on another product. That product was this tool that still exists today, but isn't well known that it's a human powered email editing and proofreading service. So I was trying to build a business around hiring human editors to write your emails for you so that you could get through your inbox faster. And in running that company and managing some stuff for that company, I wanted an easy way to send a, a small email campaign to about 20 people. And I was a big Gmail user. I kind of lived in my Gmail account. I was using, uh, it was called uh, G Suite at that time. Now it's called Google Workspace. And actually, it was called Google Apps. It's gone through several name changes. <laughs> and I was surprised to discover that there was not an easy way to send an email campaign from my Gmail account. And I had already had a career in the email marketing field. I had built another SaaS platform in the early 2000s called Django Mail, which had just been acquired a couple of years prior to me working on this proofreading service. And so when I saw that there wasn't an easy way to send an email campaign from my main consumer email account, which was Gmail, I just started thinking that's... One, that's really strange. And two, I'm the perfect guy to build it, given all of my experience in the email marketing industry. So by being the perfect guy to build, do you mean you went and built yourself? How was the actual process of building the, the product? I built part of it myself. So I actually built the front end and I hired a contractor to write the back end. And the only reason I didn't build the whole thing myself is because, because I had sold my company a few years prior and I... I was just getting back into software development after having been out of it for a while. So my skills were just weren't up to date enough for me to write the back end. So I had to hire someone to write the back end. I wrote the front end. I merged the code together and I had the first version of the product in a couple of weeks. And then you start using that version in your own business that you're talking about? That's I how did, it went? yeah. I, I started using it to send campaigns to 20 or 30 people and started giving it to some friends who wanted to use it. And uh, that's how it started. That's cool. And how long did it take until you had enough customers to to pay for the operations of that, that SaaS product? Ooh, I never had a lot of expenses to operate the product until I started putting money into growth initiatives like SEO and paid ads and virtual assistants to help me do outreach on my own to promote the product. So, you know, I, I spent about $10,000 to get the product built, a, a first version. And the product was free for the first year. So I didn't monetize for the first year. So I had no revenue at all for a year. And that was okay because my expenses were were minimal. It was basically just me and I had one helper at the time who just helped me onboard users and answer tech support questions from users. And because the user account was growing every month, I had a lot of confidence that when I did monetize, it would be worth it. We've had sort of a long and winding journey to get to where we are today. 
The company is about six years old as we sit here today. But we started out all working on the product in a part-time capacity. So myself as an example, when we first started working on Outsetta, it was something I devoted two days a week to. And then three days a week, I was consulting to you know cover my financial bases and, and whatnot. Uh, and then over time, as the company has grown, we all sort of have moved to working on Outsetta full-time. Okay, so your strategy was to start kind of like as, as a side project and, and keep growing from there. What's your opinion on 100%. like doing a side project versus going raising money and work full time on the product. So like why you decide to go that route? Yeah, in in general, I think it's sort of a a fallacy that you should ever raise money to build your product. Um I I think that's flat out wrong. I think there is a time and a place for venture capital, but it should be to accelerate the growth of your business. You should have demonstrated that you've built some sort of basic product that people are willing to pay for it and then the venture capital ultimately is something that accelerates your growth rather than something necessary to build your product. Unless you're building something like SpaceX and you need, you know, millions of dollars to shoot rockets into space, I don't think you should raise money to to just build the product itself. And frankly, I don't think you'll be successful doing that if you try. So you believe you should wait for like at least product market fit, figure out I am now I have a product people want, I'm able to scout this and more money could help me. That's kind of like for sure. where you think is the price the place to raise money. And how did your background, you have like a big background in marketing and you work in companies that went to and had big exits. How did your background prepare you to build this company? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So I actually went to college to to be a writer. Uh, I thought I was going to work for like a newspaper or Sports Illustrated or something like that. I got out of school in 2008, right as the economy was crashing. Frankly, I didn't know what to do. So I went back to school and got a business degree. And the combination of kind of writing and business eventually led me into marketing. But I had no particular interest in tech, no particular interest in in SaaS. I just sort of happened to land my first job in, in that space. And what I found very quickly was, and I say this today, and I don't mean it negatively, I don't have any particular attachment to SaaS or technology, what I fell in love with early on in my career is startups and the opportunity to figure out how to help a startup grow into its potential. That's really what I love more than anything. And I think the things that have sort of helped me be successful in doing that, one is is certainly that writing background. I essentially do everything at Outsetta aside from building the products. Uh, I do sales, I do support, I do marketing, I do internal operations. And in all those things, the writing background is super helpful. There's a communication component that is is just huge. Probably our, our single biggest uh, marketing channel today is content marketing. So you can see my writing background come through there. I think the other thing that most marketers need to be successful is some degree of being comfortable with ambiguity. Marketing is kind of, you know, part art, part science. Um, there is a lot of gray. You can't measure everything perfectly. And I think that that's something that I've always been comfortable with. I don't have an engineer's mind per se, where there's a correct answer to everything. I think that's been really helpful to me as well. Makes sense. Let's dive deeper into like your marketing strategy for your product and how you got your first customers. It looks like you're kind of like building your own founder's brand and that's helping a lot. But walk me through kind of like what's your high level strategy to grow the company? How did you got your first customers, your your next hundred customers and how did you do that? Yeah, I would say our strategy has has evolved. But at this point, and, and this is not something I expected going in, a huge part of our customer acquisition strategy is simply sharing our own entrepreneurial journey. And I know that a lot of other founders do that. We're certainly not the, you know, the first company to do so, but I think it actually works for us as an acquisition strategy because we sell our product to other founders. So just by sharing kind of our own journey, founders tend to be interested in that type of stuff. And that happens to be a population that could also use our product. So that, in short, is like our acquisition strategy at this point. But there are certainly other things that have contributed to our growth in a significant way. We do have an affiliate program that we use just to drive referrals to the business. Um, we don't have any sales team. So we basically treat our affiliates as our sales team. 
incentivize them pretty heavily, uh, try to present them with opportunities to create content sort of on behalf of Outsetta and, and compensate them for doing so. And then there's a couple of partnerships that have been huge for us too. We're partners with Stripe, we're partners with Webflow, we're partners with Circle, uh, the community platform. Those are all super complementary technologies to Outsetta. So just having a, a presence on on their website and whatnot drives us a lot of business as well. I think one of the last things that will be uh, removed from the AI <laughs> uh, human wars will be taste and curation. I think that's so you can generate a lot of content, right? And then mm-hmm. but like knowing which content is good is still difficult because there's a lot of other dynamic factors that come into it, like queer audiences and all of this. And you can sure you can add all that stuff into an AI, but knowing that you actually have to add those things, there's there's still like this level of having this, a bit of taste and curation. And the reason I bring this up is because I think that starting in creative as I did kind of gave me the idea of a refined eye of knowing when something looks good and just having the level of taste and curation that I think is really important for building a polished software product today. We think of software as craft and craft is actually our lead investor. It's just a coincidence, but we really do. (laughs) We think it should be polished. Things should be incredibly fast, efficient and work everywhere in every situation. So from the get go, we built for mobile. Like you can, Mm. I don't think there's any other platform out there that's fully featured as a marketing solution like ours that you just straight up use from your phone on a bus and you can build a complex marketing flow. And it's just as easy as Notion. So that level of taste, polish, and curation, we think is key to what we're doing. And I think a part of that was because I spent a couple of years in creative. That makes a lot of sense. I think like you develop and you become like a better product person. You you understand a lot about the industry and you want to build something that's very, very polished. And so you touch on investing. Let's talk a little bit more about that. How are you guys funding this this venture? Sure. So we went through Y Combinator, which I'll refer to as YC probably during this. We began YC in 2022. We started raising funds mid-February. We noticed that the market was getting a little shaky. Um, we were potentially a little early to that revelation. Not early enough that I pulled out all of the stocks from our publicly traded companies, but <laughs> early enough that we decided that we wanted to raise ahead of YC's demo day, which usually occurs around three months, at, at the three-month mark or so, end of three months at YC. So we raised ahead of demo day. We had tremendous interest from investors, which was great. Part of that was due to our past success with their previous company. We had some investors that were interested after we had sold our previous company. But Kraft uh, was our lead after chatting with a number of folks. They just got our vision right away. It was a quick conversation. And our lead over there, Brian Murray, I think really understands what we're trying to accomplish and fully supports us. And that's what we were looking for. Nice. So how much money have you guys raised so far? Uh, we raised a little over $3 million in an oversubscribed round. Uh, we ended at 3.2 and our like pre-seed uh, seed, whatever you want to call it. We're just referring to it as a first round <laughs> to <laughs> kind of avoid labels for now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we have five employees, including two co-founders. So three full-time people. That's awesome. And how long did it take to build a product, like to have the version one? Because I, you didn't have a product yet at two months, did you? When you were raising money? Kind of. <laughs> we think it's important <laughs> to, we think it's important to have revenue as soon as possible. Our investors agreed with that as well. So January 16th is when we got our first sale. And we started building in like early January. But the first version of Loops was was basically like an off-the-shelf text editor. And you you typed anything you wanted into it and did anything <laughs> you wanted to it. And then you hit like send. And then the background, Adam and I are like polishing up your email and then sending it for you. <laughs> so like <laughs> it was as hacky as could be. But we priced it in $99 a month flat. We got three people to sign up at that price in the first week. And then we knew we had a little bit of pull. If people will pay you $300 to type an email into a text editor and not have to worry about it, then you might have something. So so that's how we started. And it, it made the conversation easier with VCs because um, just a couple weeks later, our revenue had grown even further. Our product was more developed and it was easy to show um, where we were headed. That's awesome. So you guys used the Wizard of Oz approach, right? It was something at the front where you guys were doing a lot of things in the background yourself to make sure that the customer got the value that you were promising. Exactly. People tend to forget um, that you're solving a problem for a user. And if you can do that effectively, then then sometimes the UI melts away and it's less, it's less necessary. Also, honestly, like the core of the experience should just be a text editor. We've kind of tried to keep that as much as we can. In five clicks from start, you can send an email from Loops. Last objective was like 22 clicks or something for MailChimp or you know, God knows how many inside of something like HubSpot. So that's even with all the complex stuff we now do with personalization, with like deliverability, with 
all, all the cool stuff that we now have inside the app, we still, we still kept it really simple and minimal and effective. And we're now sending millions of emails, but it's also still just as easy as it was when you first started. SparkToro is all about audience research. So essentially, if there is a group of people uh, whose demographics and attributes and behaviors and sources of influence you need to learn about, SparkToro is there to help you uncover that and do so in much more of a scientifically rigorous way or mathematically rigorous way, right? So essentially, we don't, we don't use any fancy algorithms or, or machine learning or anything like that. All we do is look for profiles that match the criteria that you say you want. So if you tell us, I want to learn about interior designers in California, we will go into our index and look for public profiles that we found across the 12 different social networks that we uh, index and find people who match that criteria and then show you, you know, demographics, behavioral attributes, what they read, what they listen to, what they watch, what they follow, websites they visit, social accounts they subscribe to, all that kind of stuff. Awesome. So, so let me see if you understood. So I'm trying to promote my business, um, but instead of just going like bottom of the funnel, uh, let me go do paid ads or do SEO. Like, where else these people hang out? Where Where else can I go to to speak with my public? And that's kind of like the problem you're trying to solve. Is that right? It's one of many, right? So, I mean, the thing, the interesting thing about audience research is it has infinite applications, right? There's there's people who use audience research to try and figure out their company branding or what what to name a product or whether people are familiar with a term or phrase and they can use that in their landing page copy. There's people who use it for their Facebook and Google ads just to basically optimize the targeting and uh, the audiences that they reach inside those platforms or across their web networks or figure out, oh, I really want to be advertising on this YouTube channel. I'm going to add that to my YouTube ad account. And then, yeah, like you said, right, there's tons of folks who use SparkToro to break free from kind of the chains of the marketing duopoly that Facebook and Google have and expand where they do their marketing and advertising to look for, oh, a lot of my audience reads this website. Oh, they've got an email marketing list. All right, that gosh, they've got like 60,000 subscribers. I wonder if I could sponsor their email newsletter or I wonder if I could get covered in their email newsletter or maybe we could do some kind of partnership together. Maybe we could do a webinar together. Maybe I could be a guest on their podcast. All, all those kinds of things are questions that SparkToro can answer. But yeah, it's um, it's very broad, which means that you know one of our yeah. challenges is, is is marketing it right, like telling people, oh yeah, you you can do this with the tool, but you can do a million other things too. It's just about what problem you have to solve. That's awesome. Yeah, that's. I feel like you, you really give the founders the superpower to do a lot with that tool. So my my follow up question, and I want to talk a little bit more about your product in the future, but that's great. I think there's an amazing introduction about what the product does. Um, you're clearly not a first time founder. Um, you need no introduction. People know you from the old days. Like I know you from the Whiteboard Friday. Um, but I would like to know, like, what? How are you approaching things different now that you're building SparkToro versus when you were building Moss? Like, I was those years as founders. I imagine you learn a lot, and and you're probably doing a couple of things very different than you did before building your other business. What are those things? Yeah, yeah, no, tons of um, very, very different things. So, you know, with with Moz. Um, we were building a venture-backed business, which meant trying to reach a certain scale and a certain rate of growth. Um, our our targets in terms of uh, you know what would be considered a success was essentially an IPO or a very very large uh, sale, sort of you know getting to over a hundred million dollars in revenue um, and and preferably bigger than that. Uh, Moz did not. Um, at least while I was involved, achieve those goals, uh, and that um, that is pretty disheartening and, and very frustrating. But not at all uncommon. I think something like ninety five, ninety four percent of all um, venture investments don't meet the minimum bar for their uh, raises, and and most of them go out of business in just the first few years anyway. So Moz did better than most, but not as good as kind of the top two or three percent. Um, the yeah, SparkToro is very different. So we are we are funded differently. We are not trying to build a big team. You know, Moz when I left was a couple hundred folks. Uh, SparkToro is three people. Um, Moz was 
almost exclusively uh, in person in the office. SparkToro, we are entirely remote, have never had an office, uh, never plan to. Um, we are not focused on growing that team at all. So we're not hiring or recruiting. Uh, we're planning to kind of make a go of it with, with the team that we've got. And uh, we are very laser focused on building kind of just one product that solves just this audience research problem um, and not expanding out to other kinds of things. And we'll, we'll see how big this market is, right? I think the audience research software market doesn't really exist. I, th I guess you might say that surveys, right? Surveys are probably the thing that SparkTor doesn't replace them, but it adds lots of uh, data that is very hard to get or nearly impossible to get from surveys on top of that. And that um, that is a huge market, right? I think, you know, everyone from SurveyMonkey and Qualtrics to Typeform and all those others um, are in that space. And, and they're sort of all competing for the survey stuff. And we're trying to help on another layer, another level. Uh, I do think we learned a ton. Uh, my co-founder Casey worked at Moz for a little while too, and he was also at Wistia and HubSpot, Ookla. Um, and both of us took away um, a passion for independent work and very low touch communication. We have very few meetings, maybe once every three to five weeks, we'll hop on a call together and be like, okay, what are you up to? Yeah, what are you up to? And most of it's like chatter about what's going on in our personal lives or how angry we are at the Supreme Court. Um, and then sometimes, you know, we'll be like, okay, I'm going to do this at work and you're going to do that at work. And we'll circle back and, and see where those things are. But it's, it is a very, very chill uh, work environment. Yeah, yeah. I think we practice uh, sort of founder, founder, team-led sales. So, you know, pretty much our whole book of business is, is people that, we know or friends of friends or people that board members or syndicate members, investors introduce us to, or, you know, potentially their investors, the LPs introduce us to. So, you know, that's, that's really been for most of our company's history. That's how we've built most of our sales. And, you know, it was, the pandemic was crazy. We had a reputation very, very early on that started to solidify around being sort of the team that could find workers and access talent markets when nobody else could. And we spoke a little bit or, you know, a little bit to your question earlier. I think the the playbook of the gig economy is if you think about it, every Uber team, you know, during the first years of launching, we had to sort of drop into cities one at a time and go and hire 5,000 people a week. You know, or more if, you know, we were looking if our target was a 50,000 driver pool, uh, which it kind of is in any major city, you know, so you've got to you've got to get there really quickly. And that means, you know, coming in with sort of a full stack of playbooks from, you know, community engagement and a lot of ground game and how you engage the local workforce to like dominating an online advertising to, you know, kind of full on automation of talent acquisition. And so, you know, it's sort of what we did during the early pandemic was sort of implement that same kind of thing in manufacturing logistics. That's amazing. So like your superpower was to come and be able to bring a bunch of works very quick, quickly for this industry that now need the, the workers. How did you fund this, this venture? Uh, we bootstrapped in 2020 and we started getting you know, and the business per se was profitable. And we started getting a lot of inbound uh, late 2020. We were starting to get calls like, you guys are working on the warehouse worker problem in the middle of the pandemic. This is amazing, you know, and, you know, it was, it was a tailwind. It was, you know, you can't, you know, sometimes uh, luck is just luck, you know. And uh, so we had, we had a ton of inbound in, in late 2020. And then we, uh, we closed a pretty significant seed in 2021 in a couple of tranches. We, we took in a little over 8 million bucks uh, in our series seed. That's an amazing story. So basically, you didn't go after the investors. The investor come after you. You're like... Initially, yeah. We were, and we were in a spot where we'd been self-fund. You know, we kind of bootstrapped. We had, uh, you know, just a little bit of initial start capital. And, uh, you know, we were, we were sort of living hand to mouth and... I think the the challenge too is just like working capital when you're when you're that bootstrapped, 
and you know it was it was it all the initial interest was all inbound we weren't even we weren't looking to raise we weren't talking to anybody about raising and then sort of fall winter 2020 when uh, investors started reaching out that's amazing. Uh, it, it's a great power move on your guys' side. Let's build a product. But how do you fund it first? Like, where did the money come from for you guys to bootstrap the venture? You know, from just internally and, and uh, sort of not paying ourselves and, you know, the, the usual stuff that an early team does and, you know, uh, charging clients. Um, and that I think is, <laughs> it seems unusual in the venture backed world, but in the small business world, that's what everybody does, right? You uh, sell some clients and, and we were no different. We sold our first clients in 2019. We had a couple of small clients. I say small, but, you know, uh, to others, they wouldn't be small. They're small in terms of ARR and, and whatnot. But we had a couple of convention clients. We had CES, the big convention. We had SEMA, the auto parts guys. That's uh, another convention that's almost 200,000 or it used to be almost 200,000 participants. Um, we were working with NASCAR and the Speedway organization. So we had a few of these kind of events and things, and we were charging clients. You know, we were providing a service and tech, and we were charging clients for that. And, you know, you're sort of in a space there where, you know, you've got a little bit of cash flow and it's enough for the first couple of hires. And, you know, that's that's really it was super bootstrapped, super hand to mouth for the first year plus. I like the joke that I have been running profitable business before. That was the cool thing to do. <laughs> That's kind of like exactly <laughs> right? So what was the Nothing point? Nothing means. <laughs> now, now it's cool to run profitable, sustainable business. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Economy. I'm like, it's cyclical. <laughs> Every 10 years, it becomes cool again. <laughs> like I have been doing this before. It was cool. So yeah, yeah. But what's the percent of your, uh, of your revenue that was service versus software? Because uh, we know that to, to be value as a, there's a software business. So like if you're going to go raise money and everything, you don't want it to be over 20% of your revenue in services. So so where were you guys then? And, and you were able to keep adjusting as you kept growing the company. Uh, walk me through that. We started as a labor marketplace. And so in labor marketplace, it's the other way around. It's tech-enabled services. So we were 80-20 and we're headed to, to 2080. We're sort of in that transition now is the SaaS business is starting to eclipse the service business. But, uh, you know, when you have a really strong tech enabled services business, there's a lot of revenue in that business because, of course, you're, you know, you're providing services at 20, 50, 40 dollars an hour, 80 dollars an hour. And at volume, that revenue just eclipses, you know, the SaaS the PEPM or whatever your your monthly ARPU is on the on the SaaS side, so that's been it's been part of the transition. But that's you know as said, like we haven't really discussed, but sort of as the you know as the company evolves, we're we're now becoming a much larger company than we ever could be on the services side because of the growth of SaaS and you know all of the things that start to kick in when you start to scale. It was an exercise in. And not necessarily focusing on asset tracking, but more looking for a problem that I thought a lot of people had. I had built up several service businesses. And as I was building one of those businesses, I ran into a problem. And the problem was lost equipment. And we were using one of the most ubiquitous accounting systems in the world with QuickBooks. And it had a fixed asset ledger. And that's where we were supposed to track our fixed assets but we continually lost equipment. And as I really got into it and tried to understand what the problems were, I realized that it was a fundamental problem with the business model of accounting systems. And that fundamental problem was the people that have access to those accounting systems are limited to your accountants. And in our case, we had a couple of accountants and hundreds of employees. And those employees were the people using the equipment every day. And there was no easy, seamless way for those employees to communicate information about their equipment that would go back into the accounting department in a way that was easy for QuickBooks to consume. It typically happened over a spreadsheet or an email or a text. And when we would assign people to do audits to try to find the equipment, it was a war of attrition. You need to start out with, okay, we've lost $150,000 worth of equipment. These three people are tasked with finding it. A week later, those three people have found maybe $15,000 worth of it. 
So then you go another week and another week and another week, and you start really kind of chiseling away at that $150,000 number. But then it very quickly becomes a question of how much is it costing for ha- to have three people working on that problem full time? And then I think any business owner, manager, entrepreneur has a conundrum. Do I spend more money to find the equipment than to get the actual equipment itself? So that was part of the uh, intellectual journey to realize that there might be a big problem here that existed. And, you know, like any good entrepreneur, you, you write your ideas down. I like to use a technique called mind mapping. So we start mind mapping the potential issue that I have in ways to fix it and then other ways that the company could benefit from better asset management. And over time, I felt like there was a pretty strong argument for a better better model for tracking and managing all the things that we use to do our jobs every day. So you say over time, like how long did it take for you to like doing the mind map exercise and figure out, okay, this is a problem worth solving. And like, so how long from the time you say, have an idea to actually start trying to solve the problem? Yeah. So for me, the, uh, the genesis of the idea really started in late 2010. Uh, and I kicked it around and thought about it many different ways. You know, I know what it's like to build a company and I know how tough it can be. Uh, so before you get pregnant with an idea and you start trying to go to market to it, I've been down too many entrepreneurial paths before to, to realize that, you know, how difficult it can be. But I, you know, I kept thinking about the idea. I had other points of inspiration. I was on a business trip to Bangalore, India, and I saw a young man d- delivering propane tanks on a rickety old bike. He had four on each side and he was delivering them to restaurants and he was using an expensive smartphone to capture electronic signatures. So, of course, then I mind mapped the concept of not only having my equipment as a business owner, but then what would it be like for a company that was delivering equipment, maintaining equipment, and then refreshing equipment? Uh, and then I, I was had a little bit of a midlife crisis, and I was doing boxing and kickboxing in a gym, and my sparring partner lost everything in a house fire. And he described the communication back and forth with the insurance company. And if we have insurance and we have a loss like that, The insurance company wants a lot of detail about all the information that you had. And most of us, frankly, just don't have it. So I mind mapped that scenario as well and realized there was a a large opportunity here with consumers as well. And when I looked at the the issues I had as a business owner, they felt very similar to the same issues that the consumer had and the same issues that the equipment delivery service would have. And I felt at that point that all the signs were pointing to a significant market and it wasn't restricted by geographic border or language. This is something that anyone, anywhere that manages a business uh, would basically deal with. But, you know, we had to take a different tact on how do you solve that problem? So as a SaaS entrepreneur, that's sort of the road you go down. It's okay, I've got an idea. I think there's a market here, but then you have to go about inventing what the solution is and how you're going to market it, how you're going to support it, how you're going to price it, and so forth. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story. That is a wrap. Stay tuned for season two of SaaS Origin Stories. We wish we could have featured all our guests, but thanks to everyone who contributed to this season. Goodbye for now. Stay in touch with our host, Phil Alves on LinkedIn.